Our studies in God's Word in our evening services has been in the book of Jeremiah, but as some of you are aware, because of a number of different circumstances, I was asked to address some matters pertaining to the book of Isaiah. Um, I guess some of the men who I meet with uh, for fellowship, who are men in the ministry, uh, knew that I preached through the book of Isaiah, and uh, one of them had a question in particular about Isaiah and uh, the subject of eschatology. And um, there's a real sense in which the whole book of Isaiah is eschatology. It's all looking forward to the future hope. Um, The book is written in times of difficulty and distress for the nation of Judah, in which the prophet Jeremiah lived in the 8th century B.C. Isaiah. What did I say? Jeremiah. Okay, that's hopefully the last time I'll do that. It's Isaiah, not Jeremiah. The prophet Isaiah lived in the 8th century B.C. Uh, He was, uh, oftentimes he's called Isaiah of Jerusalem uh, because he was a a resident of of, of Jerusalem. Uh, It's likely he had very close associations with the kings of the nation. We see him confronting King Ahaz in chapter 7 of the book and during the time of the uh, Syrian Ephraim, Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, uh, their attempt to supplant the Davidic king with a king of, to their own liking. And there was a war that was fought between uh, Judah and their neighbors to the north. And that's in the first section of Isaiah um, in chapter 7. And then there's another king that comes into view in the latter part of that first section, the late major section of the book of Isaiah in chapter 36 and 37, when the city of Jerusalem is under siege by the Assyrians. And uh, Sennacherib the king, he is just defeated um, the forces of uh, Israel in their uh, fortress city of Lachish. He mentions Lachish as a city from which he sends the Rabshakeh to Jerusalem uh, to threaten the city and basically to uh, pave the way for their surrender uh, so that when his troops come from Lachish to 20 miles up to Jerusalem, uh, they would just be able to walk in without any kind of resistance. And of course, the scene we find there finds that uh, 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 Isaiah's prayer and Isaiah's uh, counseling with, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Hezekiah's prayer and the uh, counseling of Hezekiah with Isaiah the prophet that leads ultimately to the deliverance of the city, a wondrous, uh, miraculous de- uh, deliverance that God brings. And so you have those two kings that uh, Isaiah confronts, he encounters, he counsels. Um, good king Hezekiah received his counsel, was a faithful, believing, obedient king. He has, it was a different story, uh, but there's the story of those kings. There's also the story of the greater king, uh, the king that Isaiah encounters in chapter 6 of the book. Uh, Yahweh, high and lifted up, and his train filling the temple, and he sees the temple vision of um, Israel's God, and he is humbled, and he is convicted, and he's devastated, really. Woe is me, I'm undone. A man of unclean lips dwelling in the midst of the people of unclean lips, unclean lips, For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. And uh, in that encounter with God, he is cleansed uh, from the coal off the the altar. This again is a vision. It's it's, uh, something Isaiah sees in vision. The heavenly throne room of God and the uh, altar, probably the altar of burnt incense, uh, the altar of incense, not the altar of burnt offering, that was close in proximity to the Holy of Holies, of course, in the temple. And that gets reflected in this temple vision um, that Isaiah receives. And yet he's cleansed. Your sins are forgiven, God says. 
and being cleansed, he's now equipped to serve, and God uh, calls him to the work of um, of um, uh, the prophet. And um, that's a pivotal place in the book of Isaiah, in everything that follows. But uh, the all the material in the first five chapters is also a pivotal point of understanding the way Isaiah came um, to that vision. Um, it's probably all introductory material. We're not told exactly when did Isaiah preach those things to the city of, of Jerusalem. When did he uh, address those things to Judah? We're just told in the superscription that uh, this is the message, the vision of Isaiah that he received in the days of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. And it's a message concerning uh, Judah and Jerusalem in those days. And when you go through the book of Isaiah, you see really from beginning to end, the emphasis is upon the city. It's upon Jerusalem. It's upon Zion. It's upon not only the terrible present hour in which Isaiah's own life and ministry begins in the days of Ahaz, but in the glory that will come in the days of Messiah, in the day of the Lord, in the day in which ultimately chapter 65 and 66 leads us to see a new heavens and new earth. Jerusalem created rejoicing, uh, the city made perfect. And we have anticipations of that all uh, through the book. And so you have prophecies that address the present hour, the present day in which Isaiah himself lived, the troubles that were uh, around him, of the threats from the north, from first the, the Ephraim and Syria in their alliance. Later on, of course, it's the uh, Assyrians, the way it devastated the land. And um, you see the present ills, the present troubles, the present sufferings, the present um, condition that is dire and distressing in the ultimate. And yet in the midst of it, you also see the future hopes of the nation that's set before us in some measure of detail. Now, these first five chapters, I mentioned this morning when I, in the scripture reading when I spoke about that literary idea of an inclusio, that we have, in fact, an inclusio that begins and ends this section. Uh, you look at chapter 1 and um, verse 4. Uh, this is Isaiah's lament about uh, the nation and the city. He says, A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, the offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, well, how does Isaiah come to that conclusion about them? Well, it's because they've forsaken Yahweh. They've forsaken Yahweh. Whatever else you might say about them that might be good in terms of any artistic achievements they have, uh, social achievements, um, uh, achievements in any kind of art or science or anything else, it's all really for nothing because they've forsaken the God of the covenant. They have forsaken Yahweh. And they despise the Holy One of Israel, and they're utterly estranged. And everything you see that takes place in the city has to see, be seen in the light of that apostasy, in the light of that forsaking of Yahweh, and the despising of the Holy One of Israel. But the pivotal thing about this verse is not just that it describes a condition of apostasy, but it's that it describes a condition of apostasy 
against the God who is called by the name of the Holy One of Israel. Because you don't find that name, the Holy One of Israel, very often in the Bible. There's a couple of references to the Holy One of Israel in the Psalms. I think there's two of them in the book of Psalms. I don't remember which ones. I think it might be Psalm 72, Psalm 80, something like that. But it's not frequently found. It's not found in the prophets, except there are two of the prophets. I know Jeremiah has two references to Yahweh as the Holy One of Israel in chapters 50 and 52, with Babylon being the sort of the background of those chapters. But it's not found among the other prophets. I think it may be Micah or Amos, I don't remember which. There's one reference in, uh, to the, Yahweh as the Holy One of Israel in uh, those books. But all the other prophets don't speak of God as the Holy One of Israel. Uh, 49 chapters of Jeremiah don't make mention of it. Um, the book of Ezekiel makes no mention of the Holy One of Israel, nor the book of Daniel, nor uh, most of the minor prophets do not speak of the God of Israel as the Holy One of Israel. But Isaiah speaks of him as the Holy One of Israel some 40 times in the book. Very often, the reference to God as the Holy One of Israel uh, meets us again and again and again. and meets us in chapter 1 and verse 4. And then it also meets us at the conclusion of this opening chapter. The chapters that um, come prior to the commission and call we see in chapter 6. This introductory section, and we might think of it as being. For in chapter 5 and verse 24, as we're coming to the end of this whole section, and then moving then into the call and commission and the whole sections that follow the, the encounter with Ahaz, uh, you have at the end of chapter 5, in verse uh, 24, we read, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as the dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, their blossom go up like dust. I think there was a movie called The Blossoms in the Dust, and I think that comes from this very language in um, Isaiah chapter uh, 5, the blossom of the dust. For they rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, of Yahweh of hosts, and it despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Now the only addition here is that it's not just the rejection of Yahweh of hosts and the despising of the Holy One of Israel, but it's the rejecting of him with respect to his law and his word, his teaching, his instruction. They, it's, it makes really concrete their apostasy uh, was not only the fact that they had no regard to the person of the God of Israel, the person of the God of the covenant, but they had no regard to his word. They had no regard to his law. They would not receive instruction from his hand. And this forms something of an inclusio. Uh, the theme of these five chapters is the rebellious city. It's the rebellious city that rebels against Yahweh, the God of the covenant, it's their rebellion against the Holy One of Israel and His Holy Law. Um, and so that's what we have here in these opening chapters of the book. The description of the rebellion against the Holy God and His Holy Instruction. But this rebellion is placed before us uh, in terms of what we often times have referred to as sort of a covenant lawsuit. The Hebrew word for it is a rib. Uh, the prophets do this all the time. They arraign the nation for their transgressions. It's like a court setting. Here it is. 
Here are the specifications, the sins you are guilty of, one by one by one by one. Um, the picture is given about the justice of God in the judgments God brings against the sinning nation um, because here is their guilt. Here are the things they are guilty of. And again, the picture really does begin with um, their fact of their rebellion and the condition of the nation as a result of that rebellion. It's a dire situation. They're struck down. They continue to rebel. The condition is that the nation is sick from the top to the bottom, from the head to the foot. Uh, God, it's like a, a parent that's beaten the kid black and blue and there's no result. All you do is you brutalize a kid. And such a parent today would rightly be arrested for such things. Um, but in the ancient world, it was considered something of... Uh, a way to get the attention of the child. This is the right type of discipline that employs the rod and admonition. Words of reproof and giving it some, um, some teeth with regard to some uh, physical um, uh, penalty that's given, but never to brutalization of a child. It's never to dispirit the spirit of a child. It's never to provoke a child unto wrath. It's to, gain, again, gain the attention of the child and teach it lessons. And again, it's not something that ever leads, it ought to lead uh, to brutality. And it's always accompanied by words. It's always accompanied by admonition. You look to reason with a child. You look to give wisdom to the child. It's the book of Proverbs that not only speaks of a rod, but I mean, it speaks of a rod, what, four or five times, but there's chapter upon chapter upon chapter upon chapter of the father saying to his children, or to his child, my son, heed the commandment of your, of your father and the law of your mother. Listen to reason. Listen to the word of correction. Listen to reproof. Uh, chapter after chapter after chapter tells a parent how to reason with a child and to pull, give instruction to a child, to guide the path of a child so that the child can grow to, from folly to wisdom can grow from uh, immaturity to maturity and walk in the wise and holy ways of the living God. But God's deal dealt with his children uh, in their apostasy, in their rebellion, um, where they simply don't know their master. They don't know, an ox knows better who it is that feeds him, who it is that tends him, who it is that cares for him. Um, but my people don't know. My people simply do not consider this is a sinful nation laden with their iniquity. And God has brought judgment against it, chastisement against it. And it's in the form of the Assyrian armies. And again, you'll see that particularly in chapters 8 to 10 of the fact that it's not only the northern kingdom that gets judged by the Assyrians as they're laid away into captivity and these nations lose their nationhood, really. The tribes, we speak of them as the lost tribes of Israel, the ten lost tribes of the northern tribes. Um, but the armies of the Assyrians come right up to the neck of Jerusalem. And we see the picture of that in particular in the 36th and 37th chapter when they're outside the gates, where city after city of Judah has fallen to the Assyrians. And the only... The only the fortified city of Lachish has been destroyed. Uh, the chair, whatever armaments uh, the Israel had for their defense, uh, that city some 20 miles to the southwest, was completely eviscerated by the Assyrians. And it's an interesting thing that I read this long thing about the uh, archaeological digs that took place in Lachish. 
and um, the things that were uncovered uh, that tell exactly how that uh, onslaught took place and how the city fell uh, to the um, to the Assyrians and not only Lachish but also in the temple of the Assyrian king Sennacherib uh, I'm sorry in, in this palace there was actually a room a whole room given over to the conquest of the Judean city of Lachish and there are all kinds of reliefs that showed uh, the way in which the people of Lachish were taken in captivity, in captivity in chains and the way in which uh, the the armies came with their with their war machine and uh, really uh, 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 eviscerated the city. Um, so we have so much in archaeology that speaks of the uh, the things that the Bible itself re- refers to. Of course, uh, uh, Sennacherib did not have a room uh, to the defeat of his armies that is described in chapter thirty-seven. That you don't like to talk about their their defeats, but they love to talk about their victories and uh, have. Uh, Museums, as it were, for uh, the commemoration of their great victory. Um, but Judah was impacted uh, by the Assyrians as well as by their war against the Syria, Syrian, Syrian and Ephraim um, uh, conspiracy that you find in chapter 7. And what God brought upon the nation for their sins was all utterly deserved. It was utterly justified um, because of the specific sins the city and the nation are charged with in this rib, in this covenant lawsuit, in this arraignment of the nation we find in the opening chapters. Well, Isaiah begins, interestingly enough, with the religious sins of the people. Uh, Let's read it in um, verse 10. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom, Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And it's not so much they were guilty of what we think of the sins of Sodom, that there was the sexual sins or homosexuality that is often associated in the mind of Bible students with the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that is um, before, our, before us in this section. Um, because it goes on to say, if the Lord had not um, left us with a remnant, we would have become as Sodom, and we would have become as Gomorrah. It was the utter destruction of um, the city, uh, I'm sorry, not the city, but of the the nation of Judah, uh, except the city of Jerusalem, uh, where the remnant survived, where the the future lay. It relayed with this remnant people that comprised the future of of, of the nation. But um, the call to give ear to the sins of this sinning city uh, that were under the judgment of God, God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And you know, people have read this passage, particularly when much criticism of the Bible came into vogue. 
uh, particularly in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, is they said, well, look, here we have a division in Israel amongst the priests that were all in favor of the ritual, all in favor of the temple, all in favor of sacrifice. And then you had the prophets who were ethical monotheists. And they came along and said, uh, woe unto you priests, or a pox upon the priests. Uh, let's get done with priestcraft. Uh, let's not have any regard for um, sacrifices and offerings and feast days and fast days, sacred space, sacred times, out the window. Let's just uh, re uh, reevaluate things in terms of a new understanding, which is that of ethical monotheism that doesn't bring sacrifices at all. Well, you know, you come to that conclusion and you have some problems. First of all, you have the problem of the fact that God also says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Is God cease to be a prayer-answering prayer answering God? As well as a God who doesn't receive sacrifices from his people? The sacrificial system is dead. The temple worship pox on it, let's be done with it let's replace it with a new regime of ethical monotheism it doesn't work it doesn't work and it doesn't work particularly because the fact that God's not saying he didn't require sacrifice he says I've not required this kind of sacrifice that which you are doing is engaging in the sacrifices of my appointment in a way I've never intended it in a way I've not appointed it, which is to mask the reality of your transgressions against me. Your problem is that you have mingled the, the worship that I have appointed with iniquity. The end of verse 13 says it. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. You're coming to worship in a way I've never intended you to worship. Using the sacrifices as a man as a pathway of atonement, of a pathway of getting some cheap forgiveness, some cheap grace at my hand, just so that you can persist in patterns of iniquity. I'm filled with the with the uh, um, this kind of worship that is abominable in my sight and I'm weary of it your hands are full of blood God says you need to be penitent and humbled uh, because you're looking to mingle what God never intended to mingle in fact the mingling of religious service and um, ethical rebellion is uh, something that's found in the book of Leviticus itself you know, the priests did not teach. You could just trample God's courts with your sacrifices while you were never confessing your sin and repenting of your sin and addressing the sin issues of your heart and mind and life before the living God. For in the manual of the priests in the book of Leviticus, we have chapter 19. We have chapter 19, where in the priestly book itself, we read in chapter 19, let's just begin to read just a bit of it. It says, And Yahweh spoke to Moses, chapter 19 of Levit Leviticus, saying, Speak to the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. This oftentimes is given the name of the Holiness Code. Chapter 19 of Leviticus, the Holiness Code. 
And God says, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. There's an ethical commandment of honoring father and mother, along with what we might think is a sacred commandment of keeping the Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that it may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burnt up with fire. This is again religious ritual and the way the sacrifices are to be carried out. And uh, that's added to the fact in verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So in the midst of detailed instructions about how sacrifices are to be eaten and how sacrifices are to be offered, God says, I'm the God that also says that your food stuff belongs to me and I'll tell you how to, how to dispose of it. And part of it is, it's not all yours. The land's not yours. The land is mine. I've given it to you. And the way you farm it, you have to farm it with an eye to my concerns. And my concerns is that you're to care for the poor. And you're to care for the needy. You're to care for the sojourner. It's not your land. It's my land. It's not your harvest. It's my harvest. And I tell you how to dispose of it. And I do it in an ethical way. So that you give place in your heart for the poor and the needy and the disadvantaged and the vulnerable and the people who have need. And then the next thing is you shall not steal nor deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. And you go back to Isaiah chapter 1 and 1 to 5 and you see that's exactly what they were doing. They were doing all of these things. They were guilty of oppressing neighbors. They were guilty of theft from neighbors. They were guilty of land apportionment that God had no intention they should ever engage in. Uh, adding field to field and land to land so that you had your great land barons in the land that uh, was not being farmed by the people because the people were to have their portion in the land. The land barons were not to take advantage of the fact they were poor and look to just buy up their land at a point of their vulnerability. In fact, every seven years that land was to be returned to its original owners. Even if the land baron bought it, it wasn't his in perpetuity. It was to be given to the people who, uh, of Yahweh uh, to, to farm the land and harvest the land and live off the good of the land and the benefits of the land. In fact, you have that uh, word in chapter 1 um, in which the Lord says, um, if you're willing and obedient, verse 19, you shall eat the good of the land. You shall eat the good of the land. God, God has sovereignty over the land. And he's given the land to his people. But not a rebellious people. Not a disobedient people. Again, the curses of the law said, when the people rebel against the Lord and against his law, what God will do is he'll evict them from the land. He evicted the Canaanites for their abominations. And if Israel is committing the same abominations the Canaanites were guilty of, God said the land itself will vomit you out. But if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be eaten by the sword. 
It's to eat or be eaten. That's the question. We eat the good of the land as obedient, humble, faithful servants of the God of Israel. Will you be eaten by the sword or taken away into captivity and have no possession, no inheritance in the land because you are guilty as being an unfaithful people? So you have the religious sins of the nation. They look to mask their moral injustices, their violence, their oppression, their blood guiltiness with their sacrifices. And God says, I'm cared, I care about both. I care about both. I care about my Sabbaths and I care about justice and righteousness. I care about the offerings that you bring in a pure and a contrite heart. But you can't join together iniquity and the solemn meeting. That's not just ethical prophets that say that. That's the priests that say it as well. There's no, there's no disparity. There's no contradiction. There's no warfare that exists between one portion of Scripture and another portion of Scripture. It's the question of whether you read the law prop, properly or improperly. But God not only comes against them and arraigns them for their religious sins connected with their hypocritical forms of worship they were engaging in, but there was also the social sins that they were guilty of. Again, he speaks about the no, taking no delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Why? Well, because your hands are filled with blood. Those animals will not atone for your sins when your hands are filled with blood. Verse 21, he says, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her. But now murderers, now murderers. Life became cheap in Israel. It's not just Ahab that uh, killed Naboth in order to obtain his vineyard. That, that, that pattern was done by other kings, other people that were powerful and unjust. Uh, it could have been land grabs. It could have been just uh, because life had become cheap. But murderers went free. Um, no justice in bringing them to justice. Um, princes and people simply cast justice to the winds. He speaks about them coming to love bribes. Verse 23, your princes are rebels, companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Again, bribes, theft, indifference to the needy, the vulnerable and the weak. Chapter 2, you see they're filled with the customs from the east. Probably, again, Assyria. It was there in Assyria that we read in the book of Kings that King Ahaz went to the Assyria to visit and uh, saw the... uh, He had become, in in essence, a a client state of the Assyrians. Uh, He was paying them off, giving them tribute so that the king of Assyria would not uh, invade uh, his uh, cities any longer. Um, that's how Ahaz dealt with the uh, Assyrian Empire. Uh, 
knuckled under to them rather than trust Yahweh and trust in his deliverance. Uh, he had engaged in an um, alliance with the Assyrians and come under Assyrian rule. And uh, you know what he did when he came back from Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians? He uh, remembered the altar that he had seen there. And he had one of his uh, architects, gifted guy, to uh, basically draw the replica of the altar of Assyria. And he had that built. And he had God's altar, the altar of burnt offering that was outside the tent, or outside the, outside the temple proper. Uh, he removed it. He removed it. And he put an Assyrian altar in its place filled with customs from the east, alliances with foreign kings, uh, alliances with their idolatries. Not only that, there were the superstitions of the Philistines. That was the nation to the west. Customs from the east, superstitions from the west. Um, fortune tellers like the Philistines. Again, they strike hands with the children of foreigners. That speaks of alliances. They're entering into covenants with uh, the nations and defying their covenant God and not being faithful to their covenant uh, with Yahweh. And then you see the growth of materialism mentioned in verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. And, And the reference to the silver and the gold and to the uh, horses and chariots. Likely it's a reference to the book of Deuteronomy where in chapter 17 and verse 14 you have God's directives to the righteous king. What was the righteous king to do? Well the righteous king was not to add wealth upon wealth. He was not to use his place and position of king in Israel to become personally wealthy. Of being filled with the bent to uh, just add uh, to his own fortune. But he was also not to add martial uh, power for himself. Again, his defense was not to be in horses and chariots. His defense was to be in trusting Yahweh, his God. And so there was to be no need for that. God was going to provide for the king material things and also uh, protection. And um, there was no need uh, to operate like the nations did. And that's exactly what they were doing. Hearts that were filled with avarice and desire for gain and um, silver and gold um, making their protection to be in their armies in their accumulation of horses and of chariots and as there's no end to their treasures and no end to their horses and chariots the implements of warfare there was no end to their idols their land is filled with idols they made bowed down to the work of their hands so that what their own fingers have made. And, and so, again, the, the, the problem is um, they violated the covenant. They rejected the Lord. They despised the Holy One of Israel. They sought security in themselves and in their own uh, alliances and in their own uh, uh, designs and, and plans. Um, and then they were filled with pride. Then they were a nation that was simply filled with pride Verse 11 speaks of the haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. 
God's intent is that no flesh should glory in his presence. And the day of judgment will come that will bring the proud to be humbled before him. And you have that as something of a refrain. Verse 17, you have it again. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of man shall be brought low. And Yahweh alone shall be exalted in that day. Um, And so pride filled their hearts. Confidence in their own plans filled their hearts. Uh, Chapter 3 speaks of the failure of the men to lead and speaks of the women just all concerned with their dress and bearing, opulence. That was what they were about. Again, it was a picture of utter disdain for God, an utter unwillingness to heed and hear his instruction. Chapter 5 adds to the list um, of of, of their crimes. Again, you have the picture that begins chapter 5 of the vineyard that was supposed to bear fruit for God. And it bore wild grapes. No fruit that was born that was pleasing in God. God did everything he could to, 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 to bring forth a harvest of plenty and abundance and justice and righteousness. And yet nothing eventuated of his, of, of his pleasing. Verse 7 concludes that uh, parable, that uh, picture of the vineyard, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And that's followed by a series of woes. And you know how many woes are found in the ensuing section? There's seven of them. There's seven of them. Does seven have a significance in instruction in God's word? Well, it, it does. Uh, I think I pointed it out to you before. Seven is a wonderful number to give instruction because what you could do with seven things is you can have three things that uh, uh, center around a major thing. The major thing is the middle one. It's the fourth one. And we've seen that in, in terms of the seven things that the Lord uh, despises in the Proverbs, that the central one is, um, is, is, is the state of the heart. And everything flows out from that on both ends. It's the heart issues that God is mostly concerned with. Uh, the Beatitudes, the seven Beatitudes, the central one is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Here are seven woes. You know what the central one is? The central one is a complete perversion of ethical norms. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. A total perversion and an up. Uh, and a, uh, a pulling away from uh, all ethical norms, calling good evil, calling evil good, uh, confusing darkness and light, putting light for darkness and darkness for light. And it's that uh, utter perversion of all ethical norms that leads the people uh, to these other woes that are spoken of. Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field. Again, it's the accumulation of wealth. It's the land barons. They have no regard for the property rights of others, even though God's property rights says that they should have their investment, their their portion in the land. They're simply looking at land management on their terms and not God's terms. God's the owner of the land. God's the one that gave the land grant to the nation. And they're just violating everything God says that they're to do with reference to the land. Woe to those who rise up early in the morning, in verse 11, that they may run after strong drink. Here's drunkenness and, uh, again, perversion of, uh, of um, uh, reality 
uh, just through intoxicating stimulants that they're giving themselves over to. They tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have their lyre and their harp, their tambourine, their flute, their wine, their feasts. They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. They're too drunk. They're too caught up in partying. They're too caught up in their own things to have any regard for the work of God's hands. Um, I'm trying to find the third woe in the beginning section. Um, uh, yeah, it's woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. It's almost a picture like they can't cease from sinning. Sin is just their element. Sin is just like a gathering to themselves, drawing iniquity with cords of falsehood and with cart ropes who say, let him be quick and let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One draw near. Let it come that we may know it. And it's almost defiance. It's almost utter defiance in the presence of God. Here we're committed to iniquity and sin as we draw it to ourselves by cart ropes. And what are you going to do about it, Lord? What are you going to do about it? This is the path we've chosen for ourselves. And what in the world are you going to do about it? On the other side of the total moral perversion of verse 20, you have those, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. A woe upon those who are heroes at drinking wine, valiant men in mixing strong drink, again a repetition of what you see earlier. And then a woe that's not stated, but it is still assumed. Because you really don't go from making heroes of drinking wine and being valiant and mixing strong drinks to the work of the judges. The work of the judges are also under a woe from heaven. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights. And then you have the seven. Uh, if you add woe to that last one. Why it's not there, I don't know. Maybe it got lost in transmission. I don't have a clue. But uh, the, at least it needs to be assumed that woe is upon the guilty judges uh, who acquit the, 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 the guilty and uh, um, deprive the innocent of his right. It's an interesting thing that God concludes this whole arraignment of the nation with the note of woe. Because when you come to the vision of chapter 6 of Isaiah's seeing the Lord high and lifted up, what does Isaiah do? He pronounces woe upon himself. He says, woe is me. Now forget the nation. Look at me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And we can just get uh, ourselves lost in the midst of all the social woes. Uh, say woe upon our nation for its uh, uh, trafficking and uh, all manner of evil. Of uh, failure to regard the sanctity of life. And the failure to regard the sanctity of marriage in the marriage bed. The failure to regard um, God's laws in our national life. And say well we're good because we have all the right politics about what uh, the politics of the nation should be. That we should be against this and against that and against this and against that. So I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm righteous because I have the right views. I have the right positions. I have the right beliefs. Encounter what I say encountered in chapter 5 of, of Yahweh high and lifted up. And you won't be saying what was everybody else. You'll say what was me. What was me. I'm the guilty one. I'm the sinner. I'm the one who's barren of righteousness and a need to be forgiven, a need to be clothed. 
But the wonderful thing that you have about um, chapter 6 is it offers hope to the nation because Isaiah, the man of unclean lips, who dwells in the midst of that uh, people of unclean lips, is a man who is cleansed. He's a man who is forgiven. He's a man who is made right with God. He's a man who, who, who from the man of unclean lips becomes the preacher who is the mouthpiece of Yahweh to preach his word to the nation. And if there's hope for the man, there's hope for the nation. If there's hope for the man, there's hope for the city. There's hope for the nation. There's hope for the world. But it's the God who does the miracle of grace in the heart of this prophet can multiply that work without, not, without end. And bring a nation to come to righteousness. And of course, as even you look at the first five chapters, there's not just unending judgment, arraignment for sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. He addresses those things. He addresses the religious sins, the hypocrisy of their sacrifices and their coming to the temple and worshiping in the way that they do. He arraigns them for their um, uh, injustice and their oppression and their failure to minister to the needs of the widow and to the orphan. He arraigns them for all of those, those things. But yet it's not just unremitting, unending picture of the judgment that comes upon the nation. The judgment comes upon the nation in stark terms. He says the result of their sin and the result of their failure to heed God's chastisement, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Again, think of Lachish and the war of Sennacherib against the cities of Judah coming right up to the neck of Jerusalem. In your presence, foreigners devour your land. More of that's in chapter 10, 8 to 10. It's desolate. It's overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Seems like Jerusalem stands alone. The lone holdout against the whole overthrow of the, of, of the nation. But if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Here's the note of hope. The Lord has left survivors. Here's the beginning of the remnant theme that comes fully throughout the book of Isaiah. Uh, the remnant uh, shall return is the very name of Isaiah's son, Shear Jashub, that you read about in chapter 7. A remnant will return. There's going to be a people that return. And not just return to the land. There's going to be people that return from the God they rebelled against. They've forsaken the Lord. They will return to the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They will come to revere the Holy One of Israel. They'll be returned not just to privilege. They'll be returned to righteousness. The city that is the faithless city will become the faithful city. Verse 24. Therefore the Lord declares, chapter 1, verse 24. I will get relief from my enemies, avenge myself on my foes, and I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lie, remove your alloy. Just like the call from off the fire, off the altar, came and touched Isaiah's lips. Burning away his iniquity, burning away his sin, burning away his guilt. God says, I will restore your judges. Is it the first? These bribe takers they'll be righteous judges, restored. Your counselors is at the beginning. Afterward, 
you shall be called. Remember, the city was called Sodom and Gomorrah. The city was called the faithless city, the city that had become a whore. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness, there will be those who turn back to God, who will turn away from their idols, who will turn to the living God in humility and in faith and in repentance. Rebels and sinners will be broken together and those that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. They shall be ashamed of the oaks that uh, you desired. Um, Again, the oaks are the, the places of pagan worship and idol worship were being conducted. They will blush for the gardens that you've chosen. Uh, You should be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And yet there'll be a returning remnant. Yet there'll be a people that will ultimately comprise the future of the nation. So it's not just present woe. It's not just future judgment. It's future deliverance. It's future glory. It's future redemption. There's the future hope of the ultimate city that will be the city that will come down from heaven from God. The heavenly Jerusalem. I will create Jerusalem a joy. It's anticipated in chapter 2 and verse 1. It will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest in the mountains of the mountains. And be lifted up above the hills and the nation shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. The people that would not be taught, that despise the law of the Lord, the instruction of the law of, of, of the Lord will now be the teachers of the law. They will be instructing others in his ways. The nations that will come to Zion, out of Zion will go forth the instruction, the law, out of the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations, decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. The people that were arming themselves to the teeth to go to war against their enemies, now they will take their swords and they will turn them into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O come, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Again, it's an anticipation of the peaceable kingdom you find in uh, chapter 11 with the lion lying down with the lamb and the, the child leading them. Chapter, uh, the, the, the anticipation of the, um, uh, the righteous kingdom that's uh, again in chapter 65 and in 66. You have it as well as chapter 4 ends upon the note of in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be its pride and honor of the survivors of Israel and he that is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem and from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Again, the, the burning coal off the fire that, that uh, for, brought forgiveness to Isaiah will be, be, bring forgiveness to the city. God's going to restore the city. God's going to restore his people to himself. And so it's not just a picture of unrelieved judgment to come. It's a picture of the need for judgment, the rightfulness of judgment. God will not be God not to judge the city. The God who judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their crimes, 
the God who judged the Canaanites for their idolatries. If he did not judge Israel, he would not be faithful to his own word of promise. But it's not his delight to judge. Judgment is not his delight. Again and again and again, it's mercy that is his delight. God delights in the repentance of his people, in the turning of his people. Why will you die? Is what Ezekiel asks. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn ye, turn ye. Why will you die? His delight is in the repentance of his people, and his people will repent. God will save a remnant. God will bring a people that will be the restored people of God, the restored city, the restored nation, and ultimately impact the world as the nations of the world come to Zion to be taught the ways of God. What a glorious picture Isaiah has of the future. In the midst of present troubles, in the midst of present deserved judgment, the reality of a God who in wrath remembers mercy, and a God who in mercy restores the people. That's Isaiah's hope. That's the hope of you and me. We're not in paradise anymore, folks. We're in a fallen world. A world that in many ways is eating the fruit of its own rebellion and disobedience against the Lord. And yet we have hope. Say to the righteous, it will be well with you. That's what God says to Isaiah. Talk to the righteous and say to them, it will be well with you. You will eat the fruit of your labors. Tell the wicked it will be woe to them. God will have a people in the midst of this world that's fallen and rebellious and like the Israel and Judah of old did not regard the Lord, did not regard the work of his hands. They despised him. They despised his law. And yet the holy God will have a people. Rejoice. You're part of that people. Rejoice. We're part of the restorative work of God's grace that ultimately will fill the world with the knowledge of the Lord as it covers the earth, as the waters cover the sea. We don't have a defeatist eschatology, folks. We have a victorious eschatology. Because at the end of the day, the God of heaven wins. The God of heaven brings in that ultimate kingdom, which is the everlasting inheritance of his people. So rejoice and be exceedingly glad knowing that great is our reward. Great is our reward. And that heavenly kingdom that he will bring to full revelation at the coming of Jesus and the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So you give a little bit of the distillation of the things that come before the call of Isaiah and why the call of Isaiah is in those terms, why the whole prophecy is in the terms, the Holy One of Israel that Isaiah met, he was redeemed, gave him hope for the nation, that the nation would be redeemed, that the multitude would turn to God, and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth through a restored and repentant and faithful Zion. Let's pray together. Let's give God thanks for the encouragements that his word brings. Father, we can read this book and come to a way very distressed in many of the sections, seeing that sin abounded in the, in the land. And yet we're also 
thankful that it's not an unrelieved picture of sin alone, but there's also the reality that where sin abounded, your grace abounded more exceedingly. We're thankful that the grace of the gospel comes where judgment has come, and it turns the desert into well-watered springs. It turns the briars and thorns into the garden land that once again is the is the is the inheritance of the righteous that land of abundance and fruitfulness and of joy and of peace and of righteousness and of every good and blessing because of the spirit's dwelling in the midst of the people of God and the God who comes to dwell in the midst of a renewed and a restored and a redeemed Zion and so we're thankful for the uh, book of Isaiah, we're thankful for the hope of Isaiah, the eschatology that it presents, and we're thankful we're part of that work of, rede- of redeeming a world from sin back unto God. So be pleased to help us to think upon these things, give us understanding in them. Be pleased to bless your servants who uh, come to traffic in these notions as we study uh, these passages uh, in a different order than I presented it tonight, but yet nonetheless to present it to them, to hold, give them a ministry that's not just doom and gloom. It's not just the reality of sin that uh, deserves judgment, although that's true. But yet, in the midst of what sin deserves, your mercy abounds, and your saving hand is, is revealed. And for this we bless and we praise your great and holy name. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to dismiss us with your blessing upon us and going with us throughout the days of the week before us. Hear our prayers and receive our praise and thanksgiving for the blessings of another day in your presence. We'd ask in Jesus' name, amen.